hacking the Gibson, hacking the Gibson. Hey, Matt. Is that, is that our new theme no, song? I don't know. I just, <laughs> I just felt like saying that. Hey, Mike. Uh, I kind of want to do a paradigm shift. What do you think? Uh, yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> Welcome to Hacking the Gibson. Today we're going to talk about programming paradigms. Uh, paradigm. I looked that up and it basically is just a fancy word for model or like yep. set of rules about how something works. I thought the word was paradigm for a long time. <sighs> it should be. Uh, because that's how it's spelled. Yeah. And I didn't, I, I would see it a lot uh, like 20, 25 years ago. It, just in writing, I never heard it spoken until mm -hmm. several years later. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those looking words you look at as a youngster and don't really understand until yeah. much later. It also unfortunately has been overused by uh, so much. Yeah, corporate speak paradigm shift meaning you know like let's completely pivot our business processes to some other model so what does that really mean when it comes to programming? So there's a good wiki article that basically goes over the different paradigms or models of programming languages and what that means is really just the style in which you write the code. Yeah, it's the it's the buckets into which we categorize different programming right. styles. Because as humans, we love to categorize things, yeah. and programming languages are no exception. Um, the Wikipedia article lists a bunch of them, but I, I I think it's good to start with like two of the main ones that cover <laughs> a lot of programming languages, if not all of them, is this idea of imperative versus declarative. Yeah. Now, I don't really honestly understand what the difference is, so I'm hoping that you can tell me that. I don't really understand either, but... <laughs> also, we're not experts. This is just a discussion, but... Yeah. At a ahead. really high level... You're being judged. What? Uh, at a really high level, your declarative uh, style of programming, it, that paradigm, is saying, here is how to compute a thing without changing anything about the state of the system, generally speaking. I mean, can you give an example? Like The addition operator is a function. Mm -hmm. Right. A plus B is going to give you an answer. It didn't change A. It didn't change B. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, it's gives you some new result mm -hmm. that comes out. And if you want to assign that back to A or B, you can. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the actual act of addition is a, is a strict functional. OK, so thing. the plus sign is the declarative part of that. Yeah. More or less like it's it's like you could say a function addition take A and B as arguments right. and output C. Whereas something like increment, right? Mm -hmm. If you said increment A, that's going to actually modify the value of A. That would be more of an imperative style. Oh. Right. And, and under imperative, you really have two styles of programming there, two paradigms, which is procedural, which is what everybody did 25 years ago mm -hmm. <laughs> in programming because there was Do this thing, then yeah. do this thing. And procedural and functional are very similar, except for procedural can have side effects and functional you're really not supposed to. So is functional just kind of like a safer procedural? It is a more deterministic okay. procedural. Um, if I call the same function, especially if you're talking like pure functional programming, and there is a distinction there that I don't quite get, mm -hmm. um, but in pure functional programming, you do not modify anything in your function. So if you call the same function with the same values you're going to get the same result every time in procedural something could be changing behind the scenes i could have a counter mm -hmm. and i could be adding that counter to something and it, it's not passed in and so i might get a different answer 
So it's sort of like inside of the function is its own thing, and it will not affect anything outside of the function. That's how it's supposed to be, yeah. Okay. That's sort of like the idealized platonic ideal of functional <laughs> yes. functional programming. Okay. And then in addition to procedural on the imperative side, you have object-oriented programming. Mm-hmm. And object-oriented programming at its core is you take the data and the functions that operate on that data, and you put them together. Mm-hmm. They're in one place. Object-oriented programming is sort of the is really on the opposite end of the spectrum from functional, right? Functional, you don't muck with your data mm-hmm. in your functions. And in object-oriented programming, you explicitly do, mm-hmm. right? So so Ruby is the one that we always go to, right? So like five dot times do mm-hmm. uh, is looking at my number five and it has a times thing built into that class. So it knows what it means to do something integer times. Right. Five. But if I did like foo the string times it wouldn't understand that because that's a different class right unless you built that into the class's logic right Right. so all the logic so as opposed to in procedural programming what you would do is you would say concatenate this string with this other string right Mm -hmm. in uh object oriented you would send to say my string dot concatenate other string and so it's it's putting the data and the the methods on the data together and that the thing everybody messes up with object oriented programming Inheritance? In, in, in practice? No. Oh. Is missing that concept is data and the methods that go with that, that operate on that data go together. Right. As soon as you're not doing that, you don't, if you're not, if your classes are not organized that way, you're really not doing proper object-oriented programming. Right. Ex- except I, I feel like what you're kind of hinting around is that it's, you, you can, even though you shouldn't, do procedural inside of your object-oriented yes. program. You can also do functional inside of your object-oriented and vice versa. Right. It just becomes messy. The whole point of these, like we just said, is this is classifying systems. It's a way about thinking about how to solve problems. Mm-hmm. And when you mesh the styles together, mm-hmm. that's where things start to fall apart. Yeah, paradigm break. Yeah, you can do impure functional programming and it loses a lot of the benefits of doing functional programming. Mm-hmm. You can do you can do classes that aren't really well-defined objects. Mm-hmm. They just become a namespace at that point. Mm-hmm. It's a way of grouping things right. and it loses the the benefits of object-oriented programming. Right. Um, and procedural is sort of just the... That's, that's the one that doesn't have either of those. Right. Well, and, and one of the languages that is probably the most popular one right now is JavaScript. Yep. Which does not have the concept of a class, but it is technically object-oriented because it has the concept of a prototype. Yes. So what is the difference between those? On the spot. <laughs> that, that's actually a hard concept to explain. I have actually read up quite a bit on this because mm-hmm. it's weird. Um, in a standard object-oriented programming model, you have your class definition, mm-hmm. and you have instances of that class where you actually instantiate it, right? For Create example, it. Yeah, for example, you have like the class car, and yeah. you might make an instance of it called, you know, Ford yeah. or something like that. Or that might even be a subclass, right? An easier example mm. of that is an integer class, right? Mm-hmm. I have an integer class that has operations add, subtract, multiply, divide, whatever. The instance of that class is the number five. Right. Right. And then I can, and that has the actual data. Like you don't, you instantiate it with the data mm-hmm. and then you do it. In a prototype based language like JavaScript, my understanding is basically you, when you don't create a class definition, you create that instance and then everybody else like copies it and changes the data. Mm-hmm. Basically, you make a prototype. Right, you're making okay. like a template. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the weird thing about it is the way the way you attach methods to your prototype is mm-hmm. very strange in JavaScript. Mm-hmm. In that you'll compared like, to what you're doing. Yeah, because your prototype will be like your data, and then you just start tacking on 
methods to right. it. Yeah. Um, so it, you can do object-oriented programming in JavaScript, but it's messier and generally speaking less... It, it's more likely that you're going to fall into the trap of not doing object-oriented programming correctly, and so you lose a lot of the benefits of it. Right. Whereas TypeScript kind of starts to enforce mm -hmm. those rules back on it. Yeah. I can tell... I mean, you've done a lot of... Oop, object-oriented yeah. programming, and but not as much functional programming. Yeah, I've but, done some. Yeah, and, but which one do you enjoy more I, as a concept working in? I think in object-oriented programming. Like, mm -hmm. that is the way my brain operates mm -hmm. already. Even before I understood that concept, I already <laughs> tended to lump my data and my, and my methods together in just C. Right, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and so I, I get how that works better functional programming is uh easier to write the functions in mm -hmm. but putting it all together is more complex in my experience and so i prefer object-oriented programming but functional tends to be more deterministic which is a good thing right if, if you're doing like military work or something that uh, embedded work right <laughs> you want to make sure that when that function is run it always Outputs the same yeah. thing and doesn't mess with other stuff. Right. But but if you were if you were making like I don't know a video game, like does it make sense to make a video game in you know pure functional language? I would say that game programming, everything I've ever looked at, is almost always procedural. It's not object oriented, really, and it's not functional. I've there are some game engines that have some object oriented concepts in them, uh -huh. but they really. In, and I think a lot of where they fall apart is, is they're not super efficient to go through as an object. So they want, they'll hold the data in a different way so that you can manipulate it more efficiently. Because game programming is almost all about efficiency, mm -hmm. which is why I'm bad at it. <laughs> that, that's so that's so strange because the one time I tried to make a game, I made like a text adventure in Ruby. And I definitely did it in an object-oriented way yeah. where you had like the game world was a class and an enemy was a class yeah. and a weapon was a class and so every game was literally just make a new instance of the game world class which makes a bunch of instances of things that do things yeah. and know? and that's how i've done in particular text adventure games when mm -hmm. i've written them that maps really really well to that model mm -hmm. but when you start getting into graphics programming and things are changing and you've got you know, a billion pixels that you want to manipulate that mm -hmm. you start to lose that the efficiency that you need there. Mm -hmm. And so it's usually some sort of mixture of functional and procedural or functional and object oriented or procedural and object oriented. It's usually a mixture. Right. And, and, and I think that's a good, that's a good point to reinforce that like the, these list of paradigms are not specific necessarily to any one language and they are often multiple ones are found in every language. Yes. So it's just, I mean, in general, it's probably a better idea to choose a paradigm when you're writing and not intermingle them. Yeah. But like you said, modeling the game world may be in object-oriented, but working on the graphics driver or the, the way the graphics are put to the screen, it, you know, you may not be able to do it that way. So you have to mix right. the, the, the paradigms. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and most languages will let you do most of those things. Right? right. Python, you can absolutely do functional, procedural, or object-oriented programming. Mm -hmm. And I've absolutely seen people mix all three in the single file. <laughs> do you uh, cringe when you see that? Or? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I well, see in the same file, sure. Yeah. And, and you see it even more in languages that people are more... I think we talked about this in our language episode. The, the languages that are a little bit more newbie-friendly, mm -hmm. JavaScript, for mm -hmm. example, where you can just kind of jump in and start messing with it right away. Mm -hmm. um, and you've, so you've got a lot of people 
doing things, you end up with a lot more of that because people haven't studied this stuff as much. Right. Or a lot of the people who are using it haven't studied these concepts. So they're throwing anything at the wall that works to right. see what sticks. And so you end up with the messier code. Right. Well, and, and if the language itself is built to be more forgiving, yes. then unfortunately that also allows... Right. And this is one of the problems with JavaScript, Python, Perl, Ruby, all the... Actually, Ruby is like enforces object-oriented programming. Right. So it, it's actually less so of a problem there than in, that, than in most languages. But a lot of the scripting languages mm -hmm. are very freeform and let you do whatever you want. And so you can write them really cleanly and well. But it's just as easy to mix everything. It's easier even just to mix all these paradigms together right. and get weird stuff. Right. And then you have uh, a newer language that's like the exact opposite of that, uh, like Rust. Yes. Which is, you know, designed to be like memory safe and, and, and it compiles. So it will tell you that your code is bad before it tries to run it, where is most of these interpreted languages will be okay with it. Yeah. Like if it's bad, well, you might get an error, but I'm still going to run it. Yep. You know? Um so I just wanted to go over some of the other paradigms that at least the wiki uh, mentions that um, that I, I find kind of interesting. There's generic programming, there's metaprogramming, and there's visual programming. Now I know uh, visual programming is essentially the idea of instead of, whereas most languages you're staring at a text editor manipulating text to get an output of some sort, visual programming is just that. It's almost like you're using a GUI Windows or Mac program and all of the objects uh, are, you know, like little rectangles on the screen. So yeah. the ones that I've had specific experience with was back in college because I went to college for um, kind of a mix of art and technology was um, on the Mac side, Max MSP, mm. and on the multiple platforms, PD, which stands for Pure Data. And actually the Pure Data creator was one of my professors. Oh, wow. And the... I don't know if he was the creator, but he definitely worked on it. Uh, Max MSP was another one of my professors. So I was basically being taught by the people who worked or created these languages. And now, of course, visual programming is, I wouldn't like write a game in it right. or, or, you know, Microsoft Excel in it, but it was specifically for audio programming. So if you wanted to essentially make like, you know, your own synthesizer or one of the, the cool things we did, was one of our tasks we had in my music programming course using PD was... You all know that Fatboy Slim song, right about now, the Funk Soul Brother. And he does an interesting effect at the end where essentially that sample keeps getting played over and over and over again. But it also starts slowing down and slowing down and slowing down until it eventually becomes like its own note. Where because it's going so slow, all your or sorry, that's the other way. When you go so fast, it turns into a note. When you go so slow, it just sounds like you know audio jelly. <laughs> in the, you know, right about now. But then at the very end, then it speeds up to the the and then and then kind of almost orally spills back out into its normal speed. Huh. That whole little musical trick, we built that in PD. Oh, so we cool. we took like that sample. And fed it in, and then basically you have a bunch of boxes that have lines to them, and each of the boxes can be either like a variable, like you know what volume you want to multiply the signal by, to uh, a loop, which will essentially say like over this amount of time, continually slow the sample down, and then over this short amount of time, speed it back up. And you could do that in you know any programming language, but it's a lot more fun and interesting to do it in a visual programming yeah. language. Um, so. That, that's I, I really like those, although they are kind of niche use. 
Um, the the only time I've done any sort of like heavy level of visual programming has been with Lego Mindstorms. Mm. It's it's sort of like default language. Like I can do it on my iPad is using those blocks. Yes. As a as a person who started out from a text based side and have done that for decades, mm-hmm. I find it actually very difficult to use those <laughs> because I know what I want to do. Yeah. And I, I'm like, where is the, where's the picture that lets me do this? Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you can do some really powerful things in those languages. I think right. they're really interesting. And, and, and without having to learn the decades of experience exactly. of knowing all the commands to type to make yeah. it happen. So. They're, they're kind of like the WYSIWYG editors of the... They are, which, man, that... that That's what that, what it, you see is what you get. Yeah, but it makes it, it, makes it seem like they're lesser languages when you, when you attach a term like that, even though, you know, I think we both agree they're not. Yeah, they're not. They, they just, they have, you know, there are certain tasks that certain language types yeah. are better suited to. Every language is a tool. Yeah. Now, another one was metaprogramming, and yeah. I think, Matt, you've had some experience with that? I've done a lot of this over the years. Okay. What, what is that exactly? It has a lot of sort of definitions to it that... The term I tend to use for it is um, when my language is really, I almost end up creating a domain specific language. So I'm writing code that will then interpret some other thing that's basically other code mm-hmm. um, th- that's solving a particular type of problem. Mm-hmm. Right. So I've written programming languages that generated additional code. Mm-hmm. Like I, I wrote a very simple, like, what are those called? Markup language, like YAML mm-hmm. type thing, put one of those together and then have it generate and because my code is very, you know, follows certain rules or certain organizational patterns, I can describe it very simply. Mm-hmm. And then I've written code that will generate huge swaths of of larger code that can do multiple things. So usually uh, you'll use that if I want to, like, chain two things together. That's usually a good place because it's like, all right, here's here's the descriptor. Mm-hmm. And then the code is very common to communicate them or any sort of domain specific thing yeah. where I'm, I'm trying to solve a very particular problem in a particular domain space. The other part of metaprogramming that I haven't done as much of is where programming languages can modify themselves. Mm. <laughs> um, that makes me think of uh, the term quine. Have you ever heard that? A, a no. quine is a program that's output is that program. Equine is a horse. Yes, this is just a quine, not not, not quine, but yeah, no, that that's what yeah. made me think. It's like like why would you do that? Because you can. Yeah, I feel like I I played around with some of that stuff with obfuscated C back in the day. Yeah, and that's that kind of stuff is really interesting, and and I've got a passion for artificial intelligence. I think it's a really interesting concept. True artificial intelligence, not the machine learning stuff that we do today, that will probably feed into that, mm-hmm. but like an actual thing that could learn and grow it really kind of is going to need some sort of feedback loop where it can modify itself just like we can modify our own brains to some extent by if you focus on certain concepts you can train your brain to operate a certain way you want your computer needs to be able to do that if it's ever going to be truly intelligent right Um, but most of what i've done has been in in the code generation land Mm -hmm. i've done a lot of that over over the 20 something years of my career do do you find that harder than just regular or is it just different Uh, for me it actually comes more naturally Okay. It's, I'm a lazy programmer in the best way. And I mean that in the best way, Mm -hmm. right? Where I don't want to do the same work over and over again. Mm -hmm. So rather than like copy pasting something multiple times, I will write code that will do that for me. Right. Yeah. Um, do you have a lot of bash scripts on your computer that automate things? Uh, they tend to be Python scripts, but yeah. 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 (laughs) I have over the years. Yeah. Anything that I have to do that requires multiple steps and it's the same steps. 
I tend to I tend to automate. And if I can do that in a way that's generating more code because code is how I solve problems, mm-hmm. great. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the only meta meta programming that I've ever really thought about, which is actually a subset uh, called reflective programming. Yes. Uh, I mean, in, in, a, in a really basic term, reflection in a programming language is just like using the code to uh, talk about the the, the language code. itself. Yeah. yeah, the code itself. So like if you, you know, wanted to print out the, the, the class of your, the class name of your class. You yes, know, exactly. Or, or, or the version of the programming language that you're running right now. Like that's the, ba- you know, like I have a work project where I wanted to have a debug console because it, you know, our, our web app is made up of, you know, a front end stuff, a, a back end thing, a database, blah, 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 blah. And I always want to know what, what the version of each of them is so I can just add a glance, see like where we're at and like what the next version I, even with that with that uh, that text adventure I did, uh, I had something which um, <laughs> it, it was more of an API check, but it was like checking to see if the version you were running was the newest version that exists on Ruby Gems. Oh yeah, it was a Ruby Gem. You know, like that's something we all do, but we probably don't really think about it as metaprogramming. But it is kind yeah. of you know. It lets your your code be smart about itself. Right. It, it's it's like making your code aware that it is a thing and yeah. has properties. It is self aware. Yeah, which can get a little scary. Should uh, we do a lightning round of the of some <sighs> other things? Let's. Yeah. Uh, so generic programming. Uh, the only thing I know about this is that everybody complains about Go not having generics and that being a big issue. Does that mean anything to you? A little bit. I don't use generics in general. The only place I ever really have is C++'s templating. Um, yes, I feel like that, that was mentioned as well. Yeah. And I, I don't actually like that style of programming. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer I prefer object-oriented programming to that. Um, you can accomplish a lot of the same ideas. But in a but nutshell, what does it mean to, for, to have a language to have a generic? You basically don't worry about the data type. Okay. You are expecting it, it. It dovetails into object-oriented programming quite a bit, uh, it, or it can, in that I'm not worrying about the data type. I'm assuming that if I'm calling some operation on the data, that the data will know how to do that. Mm. Right. So it's, it's a little bit like polymorphism in object. Is that also kind of like duck typing? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which, which basically like if, yeah. if, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, it yeah. is. Yeah. So For it's, all it's, 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 it's assuming duck. things about your code without being explicit about yeah. it. Yeah. And, and you'll usually use that where, Hey, I, you know, different types of numbers, for example, instead of having an integer class and a float class, for example, and then implementing the same type of method on both, you might just have a templated class that's, that's number that's class a, acts or it wouldn't be a class just you might have a template that operates on any number uh, any sort of number type as long as it can do plus minus all those things i personally prefer inheritance and polymorphism for that they're t- two different ways to solve the same problem yeah okay uh what about concurrent uh programming or, or yeah well there's concurrent programming and then there's distributed programming you said you've done a lot of distributed programming so, yeah. so some of the examples wiki gives are Erlang and Julia, which I've heard of languages, but I think once again you could probably do this in other languages. But yeah, I you absolutely can. Yeah. yeah, and distributed programming is just I'm taking my problem set, I'm breaking it up, and I'm spreading it across multiple programs or multiple, usually multiple machines that are running the same program. Right. right? Uh, and and concurrent programming is just a gene- is is a higher level of that. Right. Yeah. Anytime if you have multiple threads running, so right with. With a with a game or a UI or anything, you're usually gonna have one thread of of operation that's responsible for writing to the screen, another one that's responsible for figuring out what you're gonna write to the screen. Right, right, yeah. 
Uh, it's it, sort of the backbone of almost everything that you've seen in computers for the last <laughs> 20 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're no, we, we no longer have, like, single CPU programs that are just doing, like, one instruction yeah. after the other. There's always multiple things going on talking to each other. Except for JavaScript, where it just has one loop. Right, although there is a thing <laughs> called web workers, which I have used... Have, have you, do you know about that? No, I do not. Yeah, it, it's it's trying to make it uh, have threads, essentially, where you essentially say that my web worker is this other file, and I can send a message to it and tell it to do something, and it will do it, and then send me a message back when it's done. That's much more my style. Yeah, like which that. seems like threading in a single-threaded language, yeah. but I don't know. One that, that Wiki calls data flow programming, which really is just spreadsheets. Forced recalculation of formulas when data values change. That sure sounds like an Excel macro. Yeah, to that's me. what it sounds like to me too. So you know that sounds fancy. Not even a macro. That's just straight up like an Excel formula. Yeah. <laughs> so that's Excel for you. And then there's this thing called logic programming, using explicit mathematical logic for programming. Some of the examples they give are Racket. Never heard of it. Oz. Never heard of it. Wolfram. I have heard of that. Oh, website. Wolfram Alpha. Wolfram Alpha apparently uses logic programming. But I've never used that site, so I don't yeah. really know what that means. So having done a lot of logic, like, like studying just formal logic, yeah. I assume it's based on that, right? Mm -hmm. Where you, you're doing things like combining uh, ands and ors and whatnot in order yeah. to produce a certain output, and it's generally really efficient. Uh, my only experience with that was back in college doing almost almost hardware-level things. Like we, we, we talked about seven-segment displays in mm -hmm. our advent of code. Mm -hmm. I wrote a multiplexer that could produce the right thing, you know, based on inputs, mm -hmm. the binary sequence that was numbers, logically using ands and or gates and whatnot, it would spit out which segment should be illuminated so that if you passed in the the bits that are zero, it would show up a zero on the right. other side. I mean, yeah, that just, I mean, you say ands and ors, that's just Boolean logic. Yeah. I mean, you use that in ifs yeah. you know if this and that or if or if this or that right. or but you chain it all together you can get some really complex behavior out of simple inputs uh another good example of that i guess would probably be minecraft minecraft uh, uh has redstone and redstone is kind of the thing inside the game that lets you do boolean logic oh because it has ands and ors and nans and xors you can build those in the game and have things do things based on that logic. So you can make a Turing machine inside. Yes. I mean, someone has already made like an 8-bit like computer in Minecraft. Nice. You can say add 1 plus 2 and it will do it and spit it out somehow. So uh, then there's these other things called pipeline programming, which to me just, it's, well, they define it as a simple syntax change to add syntax to nest function calls to language originally designed with none. Forget what I just said, because that was gibberish. Basically, what I think of that is I think of shell programming. Yeah. I think of, like, the Unix philosophy of, like... Do one thing and do it well. Yeah, and then pass that output into something else. Yeah. Like, for example, something I do all the time is, like, PSAX grep thing I'm looking for. Yeah. Like, to find a running process. Which is also an example. Each of those is an example generally of functional programming, right? Grep doesn't modify your code. It gives you results mm. so that you can pass that data into something else. Interesting. So functional and pipeline programming play very nicely together. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, they call it that just because it's like you're you're putting together physical pipes of one thing running into yeah. another, yeah. And then there's this rule-based programming, a network of rules of thumb that comp comprise a knowledge base and can be used for expert systems and problem deduction and resolution. They also mention Wolfram in this, so I'm not exactly sure. I would guess something like Deep Blue... And it, or any of those chess type programs mm. probably fall under something like that. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Uh, so as you can tell, there you know, there's a lot of popular ways to 
categorize different programming styles and conventions and the way you model your data and how it goes in and out. And we all, uh, as programmers, you and, you and I probably use some of them and don't even think about it sometimes about how, you know, like functional programming. Like I always think of something very different when I, when, when I think of that term, but the way you describe it seems like I've probably been doing it with just not even, yeah. I didn't put a name on it, you know? So, so that's all this is. It's just, it's just names of ways to think about programming with conventions to follow. I looked up the most popular languages of 2021 and can you guess which one it was without looking? <laughs> the most popular? The Java most popular. JavaScript. <laughs> yes. And, and, but of course that's probably based on GitHub data and GitHub, by the way, is a very popular code sharing platform that is now owned by Microsoft. I have basically all my personal coding projects on there because it's very easy to share them with other people and 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 you know keep track of the changes. Um, yeah, I mean, in the top ten, I didn't see anything like Cobalt or Fortran. Like yeah. like nobody these days are writing new things in those. So well, this... they're not writing anything publicly. <laughs> well, that's true. That's right. all like back in business stuff. So proprietary programs may skew that considerably, but certainly from the stuff that's available publicly, right. JavaScript, I would imagine Python is really high yep. on that. Mm-hmm. Um, Java would be yep. my guess for next. And then it probably starts falling into this, the, the C's. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even mention in our list of programming languages C Sharp, which I actually was at a job for five plus years working on C Sharp. Oh, really? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, I did .NET programming, which is like kind of Microsoft's platform that lets you write in various languages and kind of compiles yeah. down together. So yeah. you can write in C Sharp, you can write in... Visual Basic, you can write in maybe F Sharp or something. I don't and know. And C Sharp is basically Microsoft's answer to Java. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when I started using, it was like, well, this kind of reminds me of writing C yeah. and C plus plus. From from but what for I, the web, yeah, you know? from what I've seen, and I haven't done much of C Sharp. It's got a nicer syntax than Java. Yeah, it, it's a little less verbose. Yeah, there's a few there's a few less factories and stuff. But I've that. done no I've done nothing in that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I have a list of the popular. I got rid of some of the uh, some of the languages that I hadn't heard of, but of the ones that we've probably aware of. Yes, the C's. Go is on there, Java's on there, JavaScript, PHP, Python, Ruby, Rust, Swift, and Shell programming, uh, like Bash script programming. Uh, the reason why I brought up the popular languages is that I was curious of those languages, which of them use which paradigms. And they all are this uh, uh, in, in imperative programming, procedural or, or object-oriented. Yep. So that's very popular. Several of them have functional abilities. Some of them have generic abilities. Go, interesting, despite being so popular, doesn't have any of the generic or the functional or the metaprogramming. So I'm not really sure why that's so popular. I actually thought Go was all about functional, so that's interesting. At least as far as Wiki is concerned, that's not something that it, it does huh. or does well or I don't know. You know, It's just one site on the internet. Don't take my word for it. Oh, you know, one thing you mentioned was this quantum programming yeah quantum programming what is that so uh an easier thing to describe and then i can sort of take it to the quantum is parallel programming yeah we talked about um concurrent concurrent and a a version of concurrent programming is running things in parallel sort of the distributed system mm -hmm. where i take my data set i shard it up mm -hmm. and then i send it out places they all solve the problem and then they come back with the answer mm -hmm. quantum computing would do that but instead of waiting for everything to finish and then looking at the answer, when one of them gets the answer right, you're done. <laughs> oh, okay. So it effectively, it runs through. So instead of looping, a better answer or a better example is like instead of looping over 100 numbers mm -hmm. and then getting an answer, you would just do all 100 at once mm -hmm. in the quantum realm and it magically happens. I mean, couldn't you also do that by essentially creating a thread for each number? 
and saying, go do it. To some extent, yeah. But yeah. also it, it instantly stops all of the other ones mm-hmm. when you find the answer. So it's like a race. Yeah. It's like who's and the first one to figure it out. Idea, and, and so quantum computing to some extent exists, mm-hmm. um, just not at all in the personal space, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it ever really became ubiquitous, most of our, our internet security is dead. Right off the bat. Why do you say that? Because it lets you crack uh, keys almost instantly. Right. right. Because you're running these really high, complex mathematical uh, systems, but basically instantaneously. Even if my password is horse battery stapler? Even then. But better. That's why the longer ones are better. But you'd have to have even longer passwords then to make that. So 24 characters is not enough? Who knows? Oh my god. But right now it is. Okay, for now. Well, like until until for the rest of my life, is it going to be good enough? You think? Oh, who knows? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, technology is just a tool, right? It's not good or evil. Exactly. Okay. It's how you use it. All right. All right. Well, I think that covers most of the you know at least big ones and and even some of the smaller ones. So hopefully you've learned a little bit about kind of how programmers think about their code and the way they write it and 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 how they hi- hierarchicalize it. Yeah. Any party thoughts, Matt? No, that's it. Okay, well then we're done here. Thanks for listening to Hacking the Gibson. All right, take it easy. Later.